Well, it is my honour and privilege to discuss together this morning what it means to tell others about Jesus. Telling others about Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth, even Portland. Jesus invites us to tell others about him. But here's the challenge. How on earth are we going to do that? How on earth are we going to do that in this cultural moment? With all the difficulties and the challenges in this cultural moment of telling others about Jesus. I was raised in the northern part of the United Kingdom. In a town which is very atheistic. And to be a Christian was in a deep minority. I knew no one in my school growing up who was, who was a Christian. I knew very few people at college who were Christians. I was raised in an environment where to tell others about Jesus would be anti-intellectual, would be a social faux pas, you would lose friends, you'd lose your reputation. And today is not too dissimilar. When Lizzie and I, my wife, were invited to move to L.A. in 2011 to plant a church on the west side of L.A. called Vince's Church in Santa Monica. We knew that we were going to arrive in a, in a cultural moment where telling others about Jesus was a deeply unpopular thing to do. This was brought home to me about six months before we actually moved. We were invited to plant this church in L.A., but we didn't really know anyone there. There was no kind of group to plant with us, and so I would fly out from... Raleigh, North Carolina, where we were living, I would fly out for four days at a time to try and meet people, to try and kind of drum up business for a new church on the west side of LA. And I remember when I was there one day, a new friend said, oh yeah, it'd be great. I'm having a party tonight, a launch event at a bar in Beverly Hills. You should come. I go, great. This is, this is amazing. This is the LA life. And so I went along and waited outside for this guy to show up and he never showed up, which is very LA. And so I thought, you know what? I'll go in anyway and meet some folks. I went inside, I went to the bar, got a drink, and I met three people. And we just started to have this amazing conversation. And we were at this little cocktail table next to the bar. And about half an hour of a really beautiful conversation, I asked them questions about what they were doing in LA, where they're from, and they told me about their dreams and the, the scripts they were writing and the projects they were involved in. And it was amazing. But then, inevitably, the worst thing could have happened, which was eventually one of them said to me, so yeah, why are you in LA? And I thought, oh, no, here we go. And I actually said to them, look, to be honest, this conversation is going really well. I don't really want to tell you why I'm here. And they went, yeah, don't worry, this is LA, man. This is, you, you, you be you. Everything's normal here. It's fine. And I said, well, it doesn't really go well when I tell people what I'm here to do. And they went, yeah, seriously, we're for you, we're with you. You know, can't be that bad. I said, okay, but I warned you. I said, I'm actually here to start a new church. I'm a pastor. The guy on my left immediately picked up his drink and left the table. <laughs> the guy in front of me picked up his drink and looked at me and said, but you're such a nice guy. <laughs> and then he left the table. And then the girl on my right looked at me and tears filled her eyes and she went bright red as if she was in the presence of someone who was about to shame her or accuse her. And she just said, excuse me, and she left the table. We are living in a moment where telling us about Jesus faces 
difficult challenges and oppositions. And in this series that I've been catching up and listening to what John Mark and Tyler have been preaching, they've so eloquently and beautifully laid out these are the challenges that we face in telling others about Jesus. There's always spiritual op- opposition. We have an enemy. No advance of the kingdom goes unopposed. And so it's no surprise that when you think about telling others about Jesus, you, you feel the oppositional wind, the spiritual wind going against you. But not just that, there are cultural oppositions in this moment. We're living in, as you know, a post-modern generation where people are moving from objective truth to personal truth. I mean, probably here like in LA, it's like, bro, you be you, you do you. Whatever you think is your truth is your truth. And don't try and put your truth objectively onto others. We're moving from authority to autonomy. It's like, don't tell me what to believe. The days of listening to someone else, imposing their truth on me are over. I want to find out for myself. And then we're moving from evidence to experience, where people want to experience what works for them. Their truth is what works for them, regardless of whether it has any philosophical or scientific evidentiary foundation. And of course, increasingly we're in a post-Christendom society, where Christians are feeling now they're in the minority. They used to be in the majority. We're moving to the fringe of public discourse, not at the center. And differently from when I grew up in the north of England, Christians are increasingly seen as not what is right with society, but what is wrong with society. We're moving from being respected to disrespected. When I grew up, we were the moral police. We were the goody two-shoes. That was the reputation, the stereotype of a Christian. That you were actually doing good in society, but we just don't believe what you believe. Now we experience the opposite. We are, to many people, what is wrong with society. Your views and your beliefs are actually undermining our society. And because of all this cultural opposition, then we move into personal opposition to telling others about Jesus. We feel a deep sense of shame of, oh no, I don't want to be one of them, one of those people who kind of try and inflict my beliefs onto others. We don't want to come across as intolerant or disapproving or unloving. We then have deep fear of social rejection, maybe economic rejection, maybe fear of our reputation. I remember when I gave up my career in my early 30s to become a pastor, I had clients take me out for lunch and they would say to me, yeah, we kind of want to wish you well on this new adventure and venture you're taking in becoming a pastor, but um, we always thought you were an intelligent person. We're confused. And it was, I realized it wasn't a farewell lunch. It was kind of like a, an intervention they were trying to make. And they said, we knew you were a church guy, but we never thought you really believed it. You might lose your reputation and... Certainly relationships. People may keep you at arm's length. There's also a deep inadequacy we feel about telling others today because people are so far from God, they've got such wonderful, rich questions that we feel that we're not able to help them with. We think, how on earth do I answer these questions that people have? We live in a multicultural we, uh, society, we live in, in a, a world where people have deep and rich questions maybe they didn't have too long ago. And then the personal fear of, well, what is John Mark going to ask me to do? Because I want to do nothing like I grew up seeing people do to tell others about Jesus. I mean, those methods was just so embarrassing. I remember I grew up 
really passionately wanting my friends to come to know Jesus. I so loved Jesus, and I so wanted my friends to come to know him. But the only way I knew how to tell people about Jesus was in really embarrassing methodologies, really embarrassing church ministries where we would like go down to the pedestrian high street area where all the shops were and we'd take all the worship team down with us. We'd actually do church on the street and it would be, you know, oh man, let's gather a crowd and let's then tell them about Jesus. And it was so embarrassing because it would never work. And oftentimes they'd say, we're just not enthusiastic enough. So they'd point to the youth, and I was in the youth at the time, and say, youth, you need to kind of dance and celebrate before the Lord. And it was like, oh, Lord, please let no one from my school see me right now. I remember one time before I went to law school, I took a year out to do some missionary work around the world, but also in Scotland. And I went to a church in Glasgow, and they said, we want to tell people about Jesus. So we did what we knew, and we went down to the streets the shopping district, and we took the worship team down, and we did our thing, and the hope was we'd gather a crowd, and when the crowd would start, then they asked me, they said, Gare, when the crowd gathers, you go out to the middle of the crowd, and you start telling them about Jesus. And I knew enough by now to go, this ain't going to work. But anyway, we tried it, and about 20 minutes of trying to drum up a crowd, everyone was just looking at us and just walking straight past So one of the church members called Barry, who was a new Christian, was so desperate to tell people about Jesus and was so upset that no one was stopping in the street. And so suddenly I saw him when the worship stopped. I saw him go over to the side of the shopping precinct road and he went to this trash can, opened the trash can, took out a black bag of trash, tied the top of it and went back into the middle and just suddenly threw it up in the air as high as he could and caught it. Threw it up again and caught it. And he kept doing this higher and higher until eventually people started to go, what on earth is this guy doing? And a crowd started to gather around Barry. We were all wondering, what on earth are you doing, Barry? Up again, up again. And then suddenly the whole street had stopped and gathered in a circle around Barry. And then suddenly Barry did one final throw in the air. And as the bag went in the air, he looked at me and said, Gare, now, preach, now. (laughs) And I ran into the center and I preached. And I dispersed the crowd as quickly as Barry had assembled it. I don't know about you, but when John Mark says we need to preach the gospel, I go, no, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go back to those methodologies. We're paralyzed because we don't know what to do. And so we end up, don't we? We end up going, you know what? I think it's probably not my job. I think it's, I just don't feel it. I did that spiritual gift inventory, and guess what? I came out as a discipler, not an evangelist. And so we delegate evangelism to the experts. John Mark, it's your job. Do your job, John Mark. That's why we pay you. All those extroverts, the experts are the extroverts. You know, a couple of those people in the room probably are so extroverted. You go and you can't wait to tell people about Jesus on an airplane, right? You sit down and go, that's my job. Any of those people in the room today, you think, yep, there's one, one. The Lord bless you and keep you. Um, But we delegate, right? And we go, you know what? I'm all about formation. I'm all about worship. I'm all about those things. I just don't want to preach the gospel. And into that climate, we hear the words of Jesus. But you're going to be my witnesses. 
telling people about me everywhere. We can't be the silent generation. We can't delegate the greatest passion of our Lord Jesus. We have to somehow step into the greatest privilege on earth is sharing the good news of Jesus to someone who doesn't know him. But how are we going to do it? How are we going to do that in this cultural moment? I want to take us through three quick steps that I hope today, when you leave, you will feel more equipped and passionate about telling others about Jesus in a way that you can say, you know what, the way Gare described it, I can do that. I can do that. I'm going to do it this way. John Wimber, the hero of mine, now with the Lord, said, if you ever want to rekindle or revive anything in church, you need three things. You need a theology around it. You need a model that people go, I can do that. And then you need to go and do it. You need to practice it. So let me tell you my journey that I take every year to keep my heart alive in telling others about Jesus. The first thing is a theology. To remind myself of the theology of why we need to tell people about Jesus. To do that, let's turn to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read just four verses. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6 to 10. If you don't have your Bible, I'm sure it's on the screen. Verse 6 says this, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. On the surface, Macedonia had it all together. On the surface, Macedonia, like Portland perhaps, didn't look like they were in need. They had culture, they had the best architecture, the Romans had come in and helped them with prosperity and intellectual rigor. Most of the Macedonians were seen as doctors or tutors around the Roman Empire. They had it all together. They didn't look like they were ever going to need help. They were the elite culturally of the moment. And Paul on his second missionary journey is traveling around modern day Turkey and he's looking at where is he going to go next. And the Spirit kept saying, don't go there, don't go there. And so Paul was going, Holy Spirit, where are you wanting me to go? And then one night before he goes to sleep, the Holy Spirit comes into the room and gives him a vision. A vision of a man from Macedonia. Don't know how Paul knew that this was a man from Macedonia. We assume it's because he was wearing Macedonian gear. He looked wealthy. He looked the academic elite. He looked like he had it all together. But in this vision, God did something that Paul was unexpected, would have shocked Paul. Because in this vision, this man who on the surface would have looked like he had it all together was doing something shocking. 
intensely visceral. That he was standing before Paul and begging for help. Begging for help. Have you seen someone begging? Where they're standing and pleading, begging, pleading, crying out, will you please come over and help us? A culture where they've been stuffing into their souls all the the wealth, the pleasure, the leisure, the treasure, all that they could handle, the academic elite, the philosophical thought leaders of the Roman Empire. They were stuffing all of it. And yet God revealed to Paul that beneath the surface, they were begging and crying for help. We know, don't we? The words of Jesus are true then as they are now, that whatever water you drink, if you drink this, you will remain thirsty, but if you drink me, you will never thirst again. And here was a culture like Portland, stuffing their souls, they're trying to quench their thirst with good things, but they weren't God things, and therefore their thirst was never quenched. And their hearts were empty. And beneath the prosperous surface were the cries, like our city, the cries of loneliness, depression, anxiety, broken relationships, lostness, the Bible calls it, people separated from their creator and crying out for help. Paul, in seeing this person crying, begging, could then do nothing else but turn to his colleagues and say, we've got to go. We've got to go and bring the gospel to them. You see, our theology is rooted in the cries of our city of those who don't know Jesus. Do you hear the cries? Do you see the pain? Do you look beyond the yoga and the organic coffee? The great fashion and the weekend trips? And do you look beyond the facade and see the emptiness, the lostness, the pain of those who don't know Jesus? Do you hear the cries? When Lizzie and I were called to plant this church, we didn't know whether to go or not. We'd never been to LA. We just thought LA was full of smog and concrete. That's all we thought about Los Angeles. And so I went to visit, and Lizzie said, you go visit. It's not on our plan ever to go to LA, but you go visit. I remember flying in. I was saying, Lord, we don't know anyone. anyone. We're going to meet this one person. What do you want me to look at? And I felt the Lord whisper to me by the Spirit, Don't look at the facade, but hear the cries. I remember that whole weekend, someone, the person I met, uh, lent me their little moped scooter. And so I was going around LA, and it would have been so easy to look at the palm trees, to look at Rodeo Drive, to look at Beverly Hills, to look at Santa Monica, Montana, and all these beautiful streets, look at the beaches. But I knew the Lord had asked me to look beyond those things. And I could see loneliness walking around the city. I could see anxiety and fear. 
And I was praying, Lord, do you want us to come here? And I remember driving up the PCH and stopping off at a, some beach near Malibu. And I was on the beach in Malibu, and I was looking back across the Santa Monica Bay towards Santa Monica in the west side. And I suddenly felt the heart of the Lord crying out for those, crying out to him in pain. And I fell to my knees, and I wept over the city. And like Paul, I suddenly knew I had no option but to come and bring the gospel. I was a hostage to the cries. I didn't know how to do it. I knew it would be a hostile environment, but I was a hostage to the cries of those who don't know Jesus. Do you hear the cries of our city here in Portland? This last week in our staff meeting, we looked at this scripture again and I said, we've got to get outside. So for the next half an hour, we're going to walk around our city. Just go out and say, Lord, let me hear the cries once again. Let me be a hostage to those who don't know Jesus. That we can bring the gospel to them. Do you hear the cries? But when we hear the cries, what do we do? How do we do it? And for so many of us, this is where we've been stuck. We've been lost in practical models of doing that that would resonate in our society today. It ain't going to work to take the worship band down the street. It isn't going to work to fill stadiums and just preach at people. It isn't going to work sometimes just to bring them to church. I love Bridgetown. You guys have an amazing church. But sometimes your friends are so far away, church is too much for them. I remember when I was in high school, I had one of my great friends called Rob. And he was an atheist, a passionate atheist. And I was praying for him and I was trying to be a faithful Christian around him. And eventually I thought, he said, you know what? I'll check this out. And so I thought, well, what do I do? I thought, I'll bring him to church. And so I plucked up all my courage to invite him to church. And he said, yeah, I'll come. And so next Sunday I came and I prayed all day. I said, Lord, let nothing weird happen at church today. <laughs> let it not be about tithing. Let it not be a charismatic freak show. Let it just be normal. Let that person over there never talk to my friends. You know, I knew there were obstacles. I thought, no, Lord. And I remember walking in with my friend that day. And we sat down in the seat and we were there. And the worship began. And the singing began. And then after about 10 minutes, the pastor got up and just interrupted the worship. And I'm thinking, okay, it's safe so far. It's pretty normal so far. This is great. And then the pastor said, look, I just think, right, we're just not breaking through to heaven in our worship this morning. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> he said, I, what? we need to really intercede. We need to actually break through the spiritual opposition to our worship this morning. So every, everyone stands. Everybody raise your hands and we are going to tear down the walls of Jericho this morning and we are going to all shout in tongues for 10 minutes until the walls come tumbling down. And my friend Rob, who's this wonderful, beautiful atheist, kind of got up and I was sitting next to him and he raised his hands like this and as it began, he just looked at me and just said, what the F are we doing? I just thought, never again am I bringing someone to church. 
That's not Bridgetown. But have you ever felt that of, this is too far, this is too much? And so in this cultural moment, we need a methodology that I say to our folks in LA, I say, we need a methodology of telling people about Jesus that isn't pushy, super awkward, preachy, disrespectful, judgy, arrogant, unloving, unkind, cheesy, shaming, super difficult, or as Mean Girl says, social suicide. And part of the problem is we actually haven't changed our methodology in light of the changing culture around us. I got some slides here that represent what evangelism telling others was like in the 50s. In the 50s, people had a foundation of the gospel in their life. They knew that Jesus existed. They would kind of be sympathetic to the church, sympathetic to the gospel, but they just weren't feeling it for themselves. Maybe they drifted away from church. Maybe they drifted away from their personal faith, got into all sorts of stuff, and eventually they'd hear someone say to them, you know, you need to come back to Jesus. And that convictional moment, either through a stadium or through someone interrupting them onto the, on the streets going, hey, do you know where you're going to go, where you die? And people will go, huh, I need to think about that. And that convictional moment was so successful. And people would come to know Jesus. But then things moved on, and in the 70s and 80s, the cultural moment changed, and actually there were now some barriers to overcome, that we couldn't rely on pre-existing knowledge. We had to actually start to go, oh, we live in a multicultural society now. People are starting to question, do all roads lead to God? Why is Jesus different to Muhammad? And actually church was boring, and it was like, actually this doesn't feel relevant. And so evangelism, telling others, took on the form of proof, Amazing books like um, More Than a Carpenter or The Case for Christ, where people wanted hard evidence, the modernistic view of, I need evidence now for this. And then the seeker-sensitive church kicked off because church was boring. People, the 80s were so entertaining. Church was were falling behind, and you know we needed to boost the relevancy of church. But guess what? We're no longer in the 70s and 80s. And actually, where we find ourselves today in 2021 is in a drastically different scenario, cultural moment, where people have now even more barriers between them and Jesus Christ. So much so that when they're even considering a spiritual journey, they're not considering Jesus at all. They're going in a different direction. The last place I'm going to even consider is Jesus. I read an article recently where someone on a spiritual journey, the heading of the article was called Christianity is not an option. In their spiritual journey, they'd already ruled out Christianity. So how do we tell people about Jesus when this is our reality? Well, I want to give you two things to do. Two things that I think everyone can do to see the gospel advance in this cultural moment. This is what I did in London. I was in a career in business and law for about 12 years. I was passionate about telling others about Jesus. I was called into the marketplace, not only to bring vocational renewal in the kingdom for the industry in which I was in, but also to see my friends and colleagues come to know Jesus. And this is what I did, and I want to offer these suggestions to you. The first thing is this. Be a friend. Be a loving friend to those who don't know Jesus. 
Be a loving friend to those who don't know Jesus. Many of us struggle sometimes with friendships outside the church because there's so much amazing stuff in the church that we haven't carved out the time to build friendships with those outside. But follow the pattern of Jesus who didn't shout from the heavens but became incarnational and came close to people who didn't know him and he lived amongst us, who befriended us. And then in that moment, what did he do? He loved us. Be a loving friend. Be Christ to your friends. I say to people, the first step in being a friend to a non-Christian, in sharing the gospel with someone, is be such a loving friend that you're the first Christian your friend likes. That you change the stereotype of what they thought a Jesus follower was. Now, to do that, you need to actually re reveal yourself as a Christian. Because you don't want them to misapply this amazing lifestyle you have to something else in your life. You know, the worst thing possible is to go, man, you love the poor. You love your enemies. You're so forgiving. Oh, my word. It must be that hot yoga you do. <laughs> You've got to actually reveal yourself as a Christian. And I found this when I was working the most fun thing to do in the world. Because every Monday, people would say to me, Gay, how was your weekend? And I'd mess with them. Truthfully, but I'd mess with them. I'd say, you know what? It was an epic weekend. Saturday, I went hiking. Saturday night, I went clubbing. Sunday morning, uh, went to church. Church was unbelievable. And then we went to the pub and watched the footy and just had a great chill out Sunday night. And then to go, hang on, hang on, hang on. Which bit was unbelievable? I go to church. It was unbelievable. The worship was incredible. Bridgetown. They said, unbelievable, the worship was killer. The sermon, John Mark, oh, it's okay, but the worship was killer. <laughs> and they go, what? they wouldn't know what to do with that. It was totally authentic. But then they knew, oh my word, you actually like this thing. And I'd live out my faith around them. I'd say, hey, you should come with me to serve the poor. You should come with me. Oh man, we're doing this mission trip. You should come with me. And all of a sudden, what you are doing is you're building credibility. You're building trust. You're actually showing them in a world where people go, this is what Christians are. They're judgy, they're preachy, they're offensive, they're, they're politically odd, and to say it kindly. You know, this is who Christians are. And then all of a sudden, you're messing with that stereotype and suddenly you show them, actually, no, this is what Jesus is really like. It's the power of being salt and light. It's the power of being the aroma of Christ that Paul talks about. Do you live out your faith in loving friendships with those who don't know Jesus? Now, eventually, what will happen is that they will hit an obstacle in life and they'll start to go, huh, how am I going to get over this obstacle? You see, one of the three T's will always happen to all of us in life, Christian and non-Christian. Tension, trauma, or transition. 
These three T's come fast and furious. They have the last year. And what I find is when you, like Jesus was, when you live your life, a life of authentic faith, loving faith, humble faith, around non-Christian friends, when the three T's come, your, come their way, they will come your way. I remember my boss in Geneva, Switzerland, where we used to live. I had lost my father. He tragically died of a heart attack too soon. And obviously my colleagues had seen me process that for a few months. And then my boss tragically lost her grandmother. And they were very close. She was almost raised by her grandmother. And she was going through grief. And I just said, John, I'm praying for you. And if there's anything I can do, let me know. A couple of weeks later, she came and said, can I take you for coffee? And she said, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you have hope in the, in the light of death. I wish I had your faith. And it opened up a beautiful conversation about the hope we have in Jesus. And she was ready at that point, and I said, you should come to Alpha. And then over the next few weeks, on Wednesday nights, she came to Alpha to explore this thing called hope that she'd never known before. I think of Michael, my boss in London. I was in that office and I was praying for him every day and you know what? He was impregnable with the gospel. And I would never preach at people, but I could tell he was closed and living a life that he didn't want anything to compromise that life. And so I was working in the office one day and Michael burst through the doors at lunch. And he came in and he said, yeah, me and you, coffee now. I go, I'm about to get fired. What have I done? And we went outside and went to a coffee shop and I said, what's wrong, Michael? He said, well, you're a Christian, right? I go, yeah, you know I'm a Christian. He goes, well, you'd explain this to me. He said, I was walking back from my house. He lived just up the road from the city where we, live, where we worked. He said, I was walking past that church called St. James. Do you know St. James? Oh, yeah, I know St. James. I was walking past that church. And then as I walked past the gates to the gardens of the church, this man came out of the church and headed straight for me. And he stopped me. And he said to me, without saying anything else, he said, excuse me, but I've been in a prayer meeting in the basement of this church and God told me to come out of the prayer meeting, find the first guy walking past and give him a message. And I thought, Lord, let this be good. <laughs> I said, Michael, what did he say? He said, well, you know, I've lost a, a sister recently. I go, yeah, and it's been really hard. And I said, yeah. I've been praying for you, Mike. He said, I know. He said, well, this guy looked at me and just said, God wants you to know that he knows you're grieving the loss of a loved one. And he wants to be with you. He wants to love you. He doesn't want you to be alone in your grief. I said, Michael, what did you do? He said, I ran away and came straight to you. I said, well, you just left him hanging. He went, totally, who is that guy? I said, he's the bravest Christian I've ever met. That's who that guy is, who now thinks it was absolutely rubbish what he did. But I said, Michael, I think God is trying to get through to you. Tyler last week spoke about we're just joining God in a conversation he's already having. 
You're just there so God can use you in the conversation he's happening. And I said, Michael, I think God's wanting to get through to you. I think he'd love to know you. I think he does love you. And after a few more conversations, he said, okay, I'll, I'll come to Alpha. And so every Wednesday night, I brought him on the tube across London to explore Jesus together. You see, this is the power of friendship. Gospel-centered, living incarnationally among non-Christians, getting outside of our holy huddles and realizing that one of the most formative spiritual practices of your life is living incarnationally around those who don't know Jesus. I've grieved during COVID not being able to run Alpha. I'm an alcoholic. And my wife was like worried for me because I'm not living amongst non-Christians. And suddenly my attention was getting micro-perfectionistic about discipleship in the church. Suddenly my, my kind of attention span was all about the nuances of how good that Bible study was or how good that was. And it was not good for the church or for me. Because the core spiritual practice of my life I wasn't able to do, which is be with non-Christians. And so one morning I said, you know, I need to do something about this. And so we have three Labradors. We live in Venice Beach. We've got three Labradors. And I said, okay, I'm going to get up and walk them every morning down Venice Beach, which was an encampment of the homeless, houseless community. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go down and say, and I prayed every morning, Lord, open up opportunities to speak and pray with people. It's about a six-mile walk, three miles there, three miles back. Try to get off those COVID-19 pounds. And I walked down, and every morning, the Lord would open up an opportunity to speak with someone. And I promised Jesus, I said, whoever I speak with, I'm going to just say at the end, hey, can I just pray for you? And when I mean pray for you, I mean now. And I'm going to lay hands on your shoulder, ask permission, and I'm going to pray for you. Do you know what? Every single one said, yes, please. And every single one teared up as I prayed. And I felt... My spiritual blood flowed back to my body as we stepped into the spiritual practice of, the, of being the aroma of Christ to those who don't know Jesus. Now, here's the challenge. The power of friendship only goes so far. Only goes so far. Because actually, what I have, and there's a slide here that shows this, someone can turn around, you cause them to turn around and be curious towards Jesus, which is the biggest gift you've given to someone. They've trusted you, they're now curious about Jesus, but guess what? All those obstacles are still there. And this is why telling others is a cooperation between the Holy Spirit, you, and the church. Because you cannot lead someone over all these obstacles by yourself. You could do, and that's called friendship evangelism. But we are so transient and so shallow in our conversations in society that we never get to the deep things. And we never help people over these obstacles. So your friendship will be the first moment that people turn around and consider Jesus, but you need help. Sometimes churches, you invite them to church and you go, well, no, but actually, maybe that's just too much when they've got bigger questions than what we can answer on a Sunday. What do we do? Do we bring them to a stadium for someone to preach to them? My friend's not going to go to a stadium. They want to go on a journey. They've, they're not too sure. 
And so that's why at Vintage and at Bridgetown, we run something called Alpha. Because this is what I've seen Alpha do. In a beautifully organic, messy way, people come on a journey to dip their toe in the water and then go on an eight-week journey where they're in a safe, non-pressured, non-judgmental environment with people with questions and doubts and just like them. But in that environment, with love and hospitality and generosity and community, the Holy Spirit woos them towards Jesus. In one of my walks down Venice Beach, I suddenly heard this cry, Gah! I thought, oh, who's that? So I turned around, and this guy stopped on his bicycle. I went, Gah, you don't know me, but I know you. That's not normally a good thing. But I said, I said how, how, how do you know? How do you know me? He said, well, I came to Alpha. I go, oh, amazing, that's wonderful. Well, tell me, tell me a bit about you. He said, well, I'm not a Christian, and I moved to LA, and a neighbor said, you should do Alpha. And so I went along, and the first week, I just said, oh, this is a bit weird, I'm in church. But I, I, so I said to the group, I'm absolutely not a Christian. I don't want to become a Christian. I'll never become a Christian. But you know what? I like the food, so I'll stay. I went, mate, that's great. That's why we have good food on Alpha. And then he said, then I did the whole Alpha course. And do you know what? By the end, I still don't believe anything that you guys teach. But I love you guys. I never thought Christians would be like this. I felt so welcomed. I felt so loved. You guys like prayed for me. And actually, my best friends now are people in that group. And Ken, the host, we're just about to start a little book club. Remember you said at the end of Alpha Gear, if, you know, you start doing a book club and one of the books you recommend on Alpha. So yeah, Ken and I, every morning, uh, sorry, once a week in the morning, we're going to start reading that book you mentioned, Me or Something, by that Lewis bloke. <laughs> and we're going to read together. I just thought, thank you, Jesus. He's moved toward you. And that's the beauty of Alpha. You bring them wherever they are and they will move towards Jesus. It may take three or four Alphas before they meet him fully. But that's the beauty of bringing a friend to Alpha. I want to end with a story by one of my friends, dear friends, who was in one of my Alpha groups called Kiki. Kiki was and is a massage therapist, quite a new age spiritual crystal Reiki healing massage therapist. And just, it's LA, probably like Portland. And she was massaging someone, and she was massaging someone from our church. And Ruth in our church had just heard me saying, bring someone to Alpha. It's a safe, fun place. They'll love it. And they'll have such a good time that you'll never feel embarrassed that you brought them. We make sure it's an amazing environment for people to have fun. So Ruth was getting a massage, and she said, you know what, you know, Channing, you should do this thing called Alpha with me. And she said, what is it? She said, oh, it's just a place, spiritual journey. There's no way you can process your questions. You meet people who've equally got questions. It's just a really amazing place to build a community and go on a spiritual journey. And no preaching, no judgment, no pressure. So she knew my slogan. 
And she went, sure, it's not church, is it? She went, no, it's not church. It's just a community of people all asking questions together. So Kiki came. And she came into my group. And for the first six weeks, she didn't say anything, which is what you can do on Alpha. Didn't say a word. And then week seven, she started the group. She said, Gare, can I say something? I went, Kiki, of course, love you to say something. And she said, I was really nervous about coming to Alpha because my only experience of Christians were judgmental and shaming. So I've never liked a Christian. And so when I came, I realized that you were a Christian. She pointed at me, you were a Christian girl. As I didn't know what to think. But you know what? By week three, I thought, huh, but I like you. You're the first Christian I've ever met that I liked. I went, oh, thanks, Kiki. And none of, the, none of the other people in the group are Christians. They're all non-Christian. And then she said, you know, week five, at the end of the Alpha discussion, you said, look, if you want to know if Jesus is real, have a go praying a very simple prayer at home. You said, just pray, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And I said, yeah, I remember that. She said, well, I thought, actually, I could do that. That sounds easy enough. So the next day I woke up and I thought, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. And she said, as I finished that prayer, this overwhelming love just flowed through my body. And tears started to fill her eyes as she told me this. I have never felt such love before. And I was crying of, is this Jesus, that he would love me? And she said, throughout the week, when I'm massaging and going throughout the week, I so wanted to feel his love again, I couldn't stop praying that prayer. I was massaging people, and Jesus, show me your love, and it would happen again, and I'm massaging people, and his love is just all over me. And I've come here this evening, and I want to say to people, I've tried everything, looking and yearning. I've tried all the Eastern religions. I've tried the mainstream religions. I've tried nothing. And it's almost as if I finally found what I'm looking for and what I'm needing. And his name is Jesus. Kiki is now a thriving member of our community. Growing in her love for Jesus. And bringing as many people as she can to Alpha. That they too can feel the cries of their heart be quenched, be healed through the love of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the cries? Can you just be a friend? And by the prompting of the Holy Spirit... Why don't you invite them and bring them to Alpha starting soon here at Bridgetown and just watch what Jesus can do.